The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, how do we feel about loss and forgiveness? Can we forgive those who've wronged us, even after they're gone? Or maybe, especially then, we tell ourselves that we must, that it's a good thing for us to do. But what does it mean for us if we don't feel that need? Can we expect forgiveness if we ourselves haven't bestowed it on others? What do we owe the departed anyway? What does any of it matter? We explore all this with another killer Henry James story, The Altar of the Dead, today on The History of Literature. Hello, hello, everyone. I'm somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, the Olympic Peninsula, or perhaps Whidbey Island, but I've pre-recorded this episode for you. Actually, these episodes. We have a two-parter in store, looking at the wonderful and underrated Henry James short story, The Altar of the Dead, today and Thursday. This is one of his lesser-known masterpieces, Not as famous as the beast in the jungle or the figure in the carpet. Or or, uh, have we done others? Have we done more than two? I can't remember now. Seems like there was another one. We definitely looked at his relationship with Constance Fenimore Wilson. And that is very much in the air with this story, too. Remember how much regret that Henry James felt after Wilson died. He hadn't ever let himself love her fully or truly be with her, even though they were, in a sense, soulmates. They were very close, but not consummated close. And there's that incredible story of him on the canal in Venice trying to submerge her clothing, her dresses, out of his grief and torment, and the clothes rising back to the surface like fabric ghosts, pieces of his past he could not suppress, no matter his effort. James leans into feelings like this, maybe not so much in his personal life, but in his art. He leans in and explores, digs deep and transmutes it into fiction. And that's what we have today with a character named Stransom, a man who's been going to church to light candles in honor of his dead. As one grows older, one gets to know how this feels, not just my grandparents and that distant generation, but the one just ahead of me and my own generation too, now starting to be cut down by that grim reaper, that that odious wretch who's taking people from me for his own vile purposes, mowing them down left and right, leaving holes in my heart. Let's get to our story. James was 52 when this was published. He was going through his years of guilt and bewilderment, as one biographer put it, intense grief. His play Guy Domville failed in this year, 1895. The years before had been one tragedy after another. His friend Charles Wolcott Bellestier died in 1891. His sister Alice died in 1892, his friend Robert Louis Stevenson 
died in 1894, and worst of all, Constance Fenimore Wilson died suddenly in 1894 amid speculations of suicide, and James was bereft. The beast in the jungle would come soon. As he explores what this all meant to him, as he looks at his own life and what it had meant to that point, the altar of the dead is right there as well, right in this family of stories about grief, mystery, regret. He's looking at the devastation that death has visited upon him. It's a fascinating story. We begin the altar of the dead after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The Altar of the Dead by Henry James Chapter 1 He had a mortal dislike poor Stransom, to lean anniversaries, and loved them still less when they made a pretense of a figure. Celebrations and suppressions were equally painful to him, and but one of the former found a place in his life. He had kept each year in his own fashion the date of Mary Antrim's death. It would be more to the point, perhaps, to say that this occasion kept him. It kept him at least effectually from doing anything else. It took hold of him again and again, with a hand of which time had softened, but never loosened the touch. He waked to his feast of memory as consciously as he would have waked to his marriage morn. Marriage had had of old but too little to say to the matter. For the girl who was to have been his bride, there had been no bridal embrace. She had died of a malignant fever after the wedding day had been fixed, and he had lost, before fairly tasting it, an affection that promised to fill his life to the brim. Okay, quick interruption. You maybe don't need to hear this, but I always want to make sure we're off to a good start with James. 
Stransom isn't one for celebrating or commemorating generally, but he has one exception, Mary Antrim, who died suddenly. He was engaged to her, but he, she died before they had gotten married. And he was left feeling that his life hadn't really been lived fully. This was a love that he had not been able to fully explore. The implication here being that they hadn't made love. But also, I think there's a spiritual quality, as always with James, an affection, a full giving and taking. And the grief has left him without those memories even. It's a particularly cold way to feel about the love of your life. And so now he keeps the anniversary of her life, commemorates it in his own fashion. Back to the story. Of that benediction, however, it would have been false to say this life could really be emptied. It was still ruled by a pale ghost, still ordered by a sovereign presence. He had not been a man of numerous passions, and even in all these years no sense had grown stronger with him than the sense of being bereft. He had needed no priest and no altar to make him forever widowed. He had done many things in the world. He had done almost all but one. He had never, never forgotten. He had tried to put into his existence whatever else might take up room in it, but had failed to make it more than a house of which the mistress was eternally absent. She was most absent of all on the recurrent December day that his tenacity set apart. He had no arranged observance of it, but his nerves made it all their own. They drove him forth without mercy, and the goal of his pilgrimage was far. She had been buried in a London suburb, a part then of nature's breast, but which he had seen lose one after another every feature of freshness. It was in truth during the moments he stood there that his eyes beheld the place least. They looked at another image. They opened to another light. Was it a credible future? Was it an incredible past? Whatever the answer, it was an immense escape from the actual. It's true that if there weren't other dates than this, there were other memories, and by the time George Stransom was 55, such memories had greatly multiplied. There were other ghosts in his life than the ghost of Mary Antrim. He had perhaps not had more losses than most men, but he had counted his losses more. He hadn't seen death more closely, but had in a manner felt it more deeply. He had formed, little by little, the habit of numbering his dead. It had come to him early in life that there was something one had to do for them. They were there in their simplified, intensified essence, their conscious absence and expressive patience, as personally there as if they had only been stricken dumb. When all sense of them failed, all sound of them ceased, it was as if their purgatory were really still on earth. They asked so little that they got, poor things, even less, and died again, died every day of the hard usage of life. They had no organized service, no reserved place, no honor, no shelter, no safety. Even ungenerous people provided for the living, but even those who were called most generous did nothing for the others. So on George Stransom's part had grown up with the years a resolve that he at least would do something 
do it, that is, for his own, would perform the great charity without reproach. Every man had his own, and every man had, to meet this charity, the ample resources of the soul. It was doubtless the voice of Mary Antrim that spoke for them best. As the years, at any rate, went by, he found himself in regular communion with these postponed pensioners, those whom, indeed, he always called in his thoughts the others. He spared them the moments he organized the charity. Quite how it had risen, he probably never could have told you. But what came to pass was that an altar, such as was, after all, within everybody's compass, lighted with perpetual candles and dedicated to these secret rites, reared itself in his spiritual spaces. He had wondered of old, in some embarrassment, whether he had a religion, being very sure and not a little content that he hadn't at all events the religion some of the people he had known wanted him to have. Gradually, this question was straightened out for him. It became clear to him that the religion instilled by his earliest consciousness had been simply the religion of the dead. It suited his inclination. It satisfied his spirit. It gave employment to his piety. It answered his love of great offices, of a solemn and splendid ritual, for no shrine could be more bedecked and no ceremonial more stately than those to which his worship was attached. He had no imagination about these things, but that they were accessible to anyone who should feel the need of them. The poorest could build such temples of the Spirit, could make them blaze with candles and smoke with incense, make them flush with pictures and flowers. The cost, in the common phrase, of keeping them up fell wholly on the generous heart. Okay, that's the end of chapter one. Pause there. What's happening? Stransom is honoring his dead, the people he calls the others. He lights candles for them on an altar. He's not religious, but he's happy to use the religious trappings. They fit how he feels, the generous heart that he wants to expand and use to bestow on others this ritual the religion here answers his love of great offices. That's a great line. The solemn and splendid ritual. He feels good about doing this. It suits him in the state of his soul. On to chapter two. Chapter two. He had this year, on the eve of his anniversary, as happened, an emotion not unconnected with that range of feeling. Walking home at the close of a busy day, he was arrested in the London street by the particular effect of a shop front that lighted the dull brown air with its mercenary grin and before which several persons were gathered. It was the window of a jeweler whose diamonds and sapphires seemed to laugh in flashes like high notes of sound with the mere joy of knowing how much money they were worth than most of the dingy pedestrians staring at them from the other side of the pane. Stransom lingered long enough to suspend, in a vision, a string of pearls about the white neck of Mary Antrim, and then was kept an instant longer by the sound of a voice he knew, 
Next to him was a mumbling old woman, and beyond the old woman a gentleman with a lady on his arm. It was from him, from Paul Creston, the voice had proceeded. He was talking with the lady of some precious object in the window. Stransom had no sooner recognized him than the old woman turned away, but just with this growth of opportunity came a felt strangeness that stayed him in the very act of laying his hand on his friend's arm. It lasted but the instant. Only that space sufficed for the flash of a wild question. Was not Mrs. Creston dead? The ambiguity met him there in the short drop of her husband's voice, the drop conjugal, if it ever was, and in the way the two figures leaned to each other. Creston, making a step to look at something else, came nearer, glanced at him, started, and exclaimed, behavior the effect of which was at first only to leave Stransom staring, staring back across the months at the different face, the wholly other face. The poor man had shown him last the blurred, ravaged mask bent over the open grave by which they had stood together. That son of affliction wasn't in mourning now. He detached his arm from his companions to grasp the hand of the older friend. He colored as well as smiled in the strong light of the shop when Stransom raised a tentative hat to the lady. Stransom had just time to see she was pretty before he found himself gaping at a fact more portentous. My dear fellow, let me make you acquainted with my wife. Creston had blushed and stammered over it, but in half a minute at the rate we live in polite society, it had practically become, for our friend, the mere memory of a shock. They stood there and laughed and talked. Stransom had instantly whisked the shock out of the way to keep it for private consumption. He felt himself grimace. He heard himself exaggerate the proper, but was conscious of turning not a little faint. That new woman, that hired performer, Mrs. Creston? Mrs. Creston had been more living for him than any woman but one. This lady had a face that shone as publicly as the jeweler's window, and in the happy candor with which she wore her monstrous character was an effect of gross immodesty. The character of Paul Creston's wife thus attributed to her was monstrous, for reasons Stransom could judge his friend to know perfectly that he knew. The happy pair had just arrived from America, and Stransom hadn't needed to be told this to guess the nationality of the lady. Somehow it deepened the foolish air that her husband's confused cordiality was unable to conceal. Stransom recalled that he had heard of poor Creston's having, while his bereavement was still fresh, crossed the sea for what people in such predicaments call a little change. He had found the little change indeed. He had brought the little change back. It was the little change that stood there, and that, do what he would, he couldn't, while he showed those high front teeth of his, look other than a conscious ass about. They were going into the shop, Mrs. Creston said, and she begged Mr. Stransom to come with them and help them to decide. He thanked her, opening his watch and pleading an engagement for which he was already late, and they parted while she shrieked into the fog, Mind now you come to see me right away. Creston had had the delicacy not to suggest that, and Stransom hoped it hurt him somewhere to hear her scream it 
to all the echoes. Let's pause there. This is pretty incredible. A little hard to follow, but pretty incredible what's happening here. James at his finest. And by finest, I don't just mean good or, or best, but, but most subtle and refined. This is the fine china equivalent of human relationships. Stransom is a good mourner. We know that. He's never forgotten his near bride, Mary Antrim. It consumes him. And then his second most favorite woman we hear is a Mrs. Creston. She died too. And her husband was there with Stransom, the two of them over the open grave mourning together. But Creston, unlike Stransom, Creston doesn't live as a slave to the memory of his dead. He's moved on. He looked for and found a little change in his life. And this little change is standing right here, an American. And Stransom is incredibly uncharitable in his feelings for her. He hates her. Ah, she shrieks into the fog. That's how her voice sounds to him. He thinks Creston is embarrassed and ashamed. Happy, perhaps, but not dutiful. Not a good griever. Back to the story in Stransom, who has just left the Crestons, the old friend who's let him down, and the new Mrs. Creston, the usurper on one of Stransom's dead. He felt quite determined as he walked away, never in his life to go near her. She was, perhaps, a human being. <laughs> Pause there. Love that, perhaps. She was, perhaps, a human being. Okay, back to the story. She was, perhaps, a human being. But Creston oughtn't to have shown her without precautions. Oughtn't, indeed, to have shown her at all. His precautions should have been those of a forger or a murderer, and the people at home would never have mentioned extradition. This was a wife for foreign service or purely external use. A decent consideration would have spared her the injury of comparisons. Such was the first flush of George Stransom's reaction. But as he sat alone that night, there were particular hours he always passed alone. The harshness dropped from it and left only the pity. He could spend an evening with Kate Creston if the man to whom she had given everything couldn't. He had known her twenty years, and she was the only woman for whom he might perhaps have been unfaithful. She was all cleverness and sympathy and charm. Her house had been the very easiest in all the world, and her friendship the very firmest. Without accidents, he had loved her. Without accidents, everyone had loved her. She had made the passions about her as regular as the moon makes the tides. She had been also, of course, far too good for her husband. But he never suspected it, and in nothing had she been more admirable than in the exquisite art with which she tried to keep everyone else, keeping Creston was no trouble, from finding it out. Here was a man to whom she had devoted her life and for whom she had given it up, dying to bring into the world a child of his bed. And she had had only to submit to her fate to have, ere the grass was green on her grave, no more existence for him than a domestic servant he had replaced. The frivolity, the indecency of it made Stransom's eyes fill and he had that evening a sturdy sense that he alone, in a world without delicacy, had a right to hold up his head. 
While he smoked, after dinner, he had a book in his lap, but he had no eyes for his page. His eyes, in the swarming void of things, seemed to have caught Kate Creston's, and it was into their sad silences he looked. It was to him her sentient spirit had turned, knowing it to be of her he would think. He thought for a long time of how the closed eyes of dead women could still live, how they could open again in a quiet, lamp-lit room long after they had looked their last. They had looks that survived, had them as great poets had quoted lines. Oh my goodness, pause there, interrupt there briefly. What a stunning line that is. The eyes of dead women enduring in his memory. They had looks that survived, had them as great poets had quoted lines. The ecstasy of that and the agony of it. That's why I read Henry James. In spite of everything, the clotted prose at times, the overlong paragraphs, the feelings of frustration I have with, with the old master. Lines like this, which he just dashes off casually. They're so super abundant in his exquisite sensitivity and observational power. That's why he nicknamed them. That's why he earned his nickname, the master. Okay, back to the story. The newspaper lay by his chair, the thing that came in the afternoon and the servants thought one wanted. Without sense for what was in it, he had mechanically unfolded and then dropped it. Before he went to bed, he took it up, and this time, at the top of a paragraph, he was caught by five words that made him start. He stood staring before the fire at the death of Sir Acton Haig, KCB the man who ten years earlier had been the nearest of his friends and whose deposition from this eminence had practically left it without an occupant. He had seen him after their rupture, but hadn't now seen him for years. Standing there before the fire, he turned cold as he read what had befallen him. Promoted a short time previous to the governorship of the Westward Islands, Acton Haig had died in the bleak honor of this exile, of an illness consequent on the bite of a poisonous snake. His career was compressed by the newspaper into a dozen lines, the perusal of which excited on George Stransom's part no warmer feeling than one of relief at the absence of any mention of their quarrel, an incident accidentally tainted at the time, thanks to their joint immersion in large affairs, with a horrible publicity. Public indeed was the wrong Stransom had, to his own sense, suffered. The insult he had blankly taken from the only man with whom he had ever been intimate, the friend almost adored of his university years, the subject, later, of his passionate loyalty. So public that he had never spoken of it to a human creature, so public that he had completely overlooked it. It had made the difference for him that friendship too was all over, but it had only made just that one. The shock of interests had been private, intensely so, but the action taken by Haig had been in the face of men. Today it all seemed to have occurred merely to the end that George Stransom should think of him as Haig and measure exactly how much he himself could resemble a stone. He went cold, suddenly and horribly cold, to bed.
That's the end of chapter two. There are nine chapters, by the way. So where are we in our story? Stransom is a good mourner. He's lost his bride-to-be, Mary Antrim. He feels more mournful over Kate Creston than her widower husband does. He has a whole group of people called the Others, whom he pays tribute to with candles. He's good at grief. He wants to do it, except now. Acton Haig, an old friend and rival, has died. Gets the news of that in the newspaper. You remember, it used to be his best friend. They had a great falling out. And Stransom remembers the feeling of being wronged by him, publicly wronged. And he's still bitter. He feels like a stone. No grief for Haig. He went cold, suddenly and horribly cold to bed. Let's do one more chapter before our final break. What's going to happen to Stransom now that he has an other for whom he is not inclined to mourn? What will that mean? What will he do? Chapter 3 is next. Chapter 3. The next day in the afternoon in the great gray suburb, he knew his long walk had tired him. In the dreadful cemetery alone, he had been on his feet an hour. Instinctively, coming back, they had taken him on a devious course, and it was a desert in which no circling cabman hovered over possible prey. He paused on a corner and measured the dreariness. Then he made out through the gathered dusk that he was in one of those tracts of London which are less gloomy by night than by day, because, in the former case, of the civil gift of light. By day there was nothing, but by night there were lamps, and George Stransom was in a mood that made lamps good in themselves. It wasn't that they could show him anything, it was only that they could burn clear. To his surprise, however, after a while they did show him something, the arch of a high doorway approached by a low terrace of steps, in the depth of which it formed a dim vestibule, the raising of a curtain at the moment he passed gave him a glimpse of an avenue of gloom with a glow of tapers at the end. He stopped and looked up, recognizing the place as a church. The thought quickly came to him that since he was tired, he might rest there, so that after a moment he had in turn pushed up the leathern curtain and gone in. It was a temple of the old persuasion, and there had evidently been a function— perhaps a service for the dead. The high altar was still a blaze of candles. This was an exhibition he always liked, and he dropped into a seat with relief. More than it had ever yet come home to him, it struck him as good there should be churches. This one was almost empty, and the other altars were dim. A verger shuffled about, an old woman coughed, but it seemed to Stransom there was hospitality in the thick, sweet air. Was it only the savor of the incense, or was it something of larger intention? He had, at any rate, quitted the great gray suburb and come nearer to the warm center. He presently ceased to feel intrusive, gaining at last even a sense of community with the only worshiper in his neighborhood, the somber presence of a woman, in mourning, unrelieved, whose back was all he could see of her, and who had sunk deep into prayer at no great distance from him. He wished he could sink, like her, to the very bottom, be as motionless, as wrapped in prostration. 
After a few moments, he shifted his seat. It was almost indelicate to be so aware of her. But Stransom subsequently quite lost himself, floating away on the sea of light. If occasions like this had been more frequent in his life, he would have had more present the great original type set up in a myriad temples of the unapproachable shrine he had erected in his mind. That shrine had begun in vague likeness to church pomps, but the echo had ended by growing more distinct than the sound. The sound now rang out, the type blazed at him with all its fires and with a mystery of radiance in which endless meanings could glow. The thing became, as he sat there, his appropriate altar, and each starry candle an appropriate vow. He numbered them, named them, grouped them. It was the silent roll call of his dead. They made together a brightness vast and intense, a brightness in which the mere chapel of his thoughts grew so dim that as it faded away he asked himself if he shouldn't find his real comfort in some material act, some outward worship. This idea took possession of him while, at a distance, the black-robed lady continued prostrate. He was quietly thrilled with his conception, which at last brought him to his feet in the sudden excitement of a plan. He wandered softly through the aisles, pausing in the different chapels, all save one applied to a special devotion. It was in this clear recess, lampless and unapplied, that he stood longest. The length of time it took him fully to grasp the conception of gilding it with his bounty. He should snatch it from no other rites and associate it with nothing profane. He would simply take it as it should be given up to him and make it a masterpiece of splendor and a mountain of fire. Tended sacredly all the year with the sanctifying church round it, it would always be ready for his offices. There would be difficulties, but from the first they presented themselves only as difficulties surmounted. Even for a person so little affiliated, the thing would be a matter of arrangement. He saw it all in advance, and how bright and especial the place would become to him in the intermissions of toil and the dusk of afternoons, how rich in assurance at all times, but especially in the indifferent world. Before withdrawing, he drew nearer again to the spot where he had first sat down, and in the movement he met the lady whom he had seen praying and who was now on her way to the door. She passed him quickly, and he had only a glimpse of her pale face and her unconscious, almost sightless eyes. For that instant she looked faded and handsome. This was the origin of the rites more public, yet certainly esoteric, that he at last found himself able to establish. It took a long time, it took a year, and both the process and the result would have been, for any who knew, a vivid picture of his good faith. No one did know, in fact, no one but the bland ecclesiastics whose acquaintance he had promptly sought, whose objections he had softly overridden, whose curiosity and sympathy he had artfully charmed whose assent to his eccentric munificence he had eventually won, and who had asked for concessions in exchange for indulgences. Stransom had, of course, at an early stage of his enquiry, been referred to the bishop, and the bishop had been delightfully human. The bishop had been almost amused. Success was within sight, 
At any rate, from the moment the attitude of those whom it concerned became liberal in response to liberality, the altar and the sacred shell that half encircled it, consecrated to an ostensible and customary worship, were to be splendidly maintained. All that Stransom reserved to himself was the number of his lights and the free enjoyment of his intention. When the intention had taken complete effect, the enjoyment became even greater than he had ventured to hope. He liked to think of this effect when far from it, liked to convince himself of it yet again when near. He was not often indeed so near as that a visit to it hadn't perforce something of the patience of a pilgrimage, but the time he gave to his devotion came to seem to him more a contribution to his other interests than a betrayal of them. Even a loaded life might be easier when one had added a new necessity to it. How much easier was probably never guessed by those who simply knew there were hours when he disappeared, and for many of whom there was a vulgar reading of what they used to call his plunges. These plunges were into depths quieter than the deep sea caves, and the habit had, at the end of a year or two, become the one it would have cost him most to relinquish. Now they had really, his dead, something that was indefensibly theirs, and he liked to think that they might, in cases, be the dead of others, as well as that the dead of others might be invoked there under the protection of what he had done. Whoever bent a knee on the carpet he had laid down appeared to him to act in the spirit of his intention. Each of his lights had a name for him, and from time to time a new light was kindled. This was what he had fundamentally agreed for, that there should always be room for them all. What those who passed or lingered saw was simply the most resplendent of the altars called suddenly into vivid usefulness with a quiet elderly man, for whom it evidently had a fascination, often seated there in a maze or a doze. But half the satisfaction of the spot for this mysterious and fitful worshipper was that he found the years of his life there, and the ties, the affections, the struggles, the submissions, the conquests, if there had been such, a record of that adventurous journey in which the beginnings and the endings of human relations are the lettered milestones. He had in general little taste for the past as a part of his own history. At other times and in other places, it mostly seemed to him pitiful to consider and impossible to repair. But on these occasions, he accepted it with something of that positive gladness with which one adjusts oneself to an ache that begins to succumb to treatment. To the treatment of time, the malady of life begins at a given moment to succumb, and these were doubtless the hours at which that truth most came home to him. The day was written for him there on which he had first become acquainted with death, and the successive phases of the acquaintance were marked, each with a flame. The flames were gathering thick at present, for Stransom had entered that dark defile of our earthly descent in which someone dies every day. It was only yesterday that Kate Creston had flashed out her white fire, yet already there were younger stars ablaze on the tips of the tapers. Various persons in whom his interest had not been intense drew closer to him by entering this company. He went over it, head by head, till he felt like the shepherd of a huddled flock, with all a shepherd's vision of differences imperceptible. He knew his candles apart, 
up to the color of the flame and would still have known them had their positions all been changed. To other imaginations, they might stand for other things. That they should stand for something to be hushed before was all he desired. But he was intensely conscious of the personal note of each and of the distinguishable way it contributed to the concert. There were hours at which he almost caught himself wishing that certain of his friends would now die, that he might establish with them in this manner a connection more charming than, as it happened, it was possible to enjoy with them in life. In regard to those from whom one was separated by the long curves of the globe, such a connection could only be an improvement. It brought them instantly within reach. Of course, there were gaps in the constellation, for Stransom knew he could only pretend to act for his own, and it wasn't every figure passing before his eyes into the great obscure that was entitled to a memorial. There was a strange sanctification in death, but some characters were more sanctified by being forgotten than by being remembered. The greatest blank in the shining page was the memory of Acton Haig of which he inveterately tried to rid himself. For Acton Haig, no flame could ever rise on any altar of his. End of chapter three. Stransom is a good mourner, a great one, a champion mourner. The feeling he gets from this in this church where he's got these candles all set up, he knows every candle. He knows which of his dead that each candle represents. He's like a, a secular saint of remembering the dead. He even thinks sometimes, I wish one of my friends, I thinks about a friend and he thinks, I wish that guy would die because I'd have this connection with him. I could, I could feel it. I'd be closer to him in death as him being part of this collection of candles I have, burning bright, Flames thickening. I'd be closer to that guy here in death than I am with him in life. All except for Acton Haig. Not that guy. For that guy, the enmity shall endure. No honoring for you, Haig. Burn in hell, buddy. Don't burn on my altar. Burn in hell. Okay. Quick break. And then chapters four and five. Chapter 4 Every year, the day he walked back from the great graveyard, he went to church, as he had done the day his idea was born. It was on this occasion, as it happened after a year had passed, that he began to observe his altar to be haunted by a worshipper at least as frequent as himself. Others of the faithful and in the rest of the church came and went, appealing sometimes, when they disappeared, to a vague or to a particular recognition, but this unfailing presence was always to be observed when he arrived and still in possession when he departed. He was surprised, the first time, at the promptitude with which it assumed an identity for him, the identity of the lady whom two years before, on his anniversary, he had seen so intensely bowed and of whose tragic face he had had so flitting a vision. Given the time that had passed, his recollection of her was fresh enough to make him wonder. Of himself she had of course no impression, or rather had had none at first. The time came when her manner of transacting her business suggested her having gradually guessed 
his call to be of the same order. She used his altar for her own purpose. He could only hope that sad and solitary as she always struck him, she used it for her own dead. There were interruptions, infidelities, all on his part, calls to other associations and duties, but as the months went on, he found her whenever he returned, and he ended by taking pleasure in the thought that he had given her almost the contentment he had given himself. They worshipped side by side so often that there were moments when he wished he might be sure So straight did their prospect stretch away of growing old together in their rights. She was younger than he, but she looked as if her dead were at least as numerous as his candles. She had no color, no sound, no fault, and another of the things about which he had made up his mind was that she had no fortune. All was black-robed. She must have had a succession of sorrows. People weren't poor, after all, whom so many losses could overtake. They were positively rich when they had had so much to give up. But the air of this devoted and indifferent woman, who always made, in any attitude, a beautiful accidental line, conveyed somehow to Stransom that she had known more kinds of trouble than one. He had a great love of music, and little time for the joy of it, but occasionally, when workday noises were muffled by Saturday afternoons, it used to come back to him that there were glories. There were, moreover, friends who reminded him of this, and side by side with whom he found himself sitting out concerts. On one of these winter afternoons, in St. James's Hall, he became aware, after he had seated himself, that the lady he had so often seen at church was in the place next to him, and was evidently alone, as he also this time happened to be. She was at first too absorbed in the consideration of the program to heed him, but when she at last glanced at him, he took advantage of the movement to speak to her, greeting her with the remark that he felt as if he already knew her. She smiled as she said, "'Oh, yes, I recognize you.' Yet in spite of this admission of long acquaintance, it was the first he had seen of her smile." The effect of it was suddenly to contribute more to that acquaintance than all the previous meetings had done. He hadn't taken in, he said to himself, that she was so pretty. Later, that evening, it was while he rolled along in a hansom on his way to dine out, he added that he hadn't taken in that she was so interesting. The next morning, in the midst of his work, he quite suddenly and irrelevantly reflected that his impression of her, beginning so far back, was like a winding river that had at last reached the sea. His work, in fact, was blurred a little all that day by the sense of what had now passed between them. It wasn't much, but it had just made the difference. They had listened together to Beethoven and Schumann. They had talked in the pauses, and at the end, when, at the door to which they moved together, he had asked her if he could help her in the matter of getting away. She had thanked him and put up her umbrella, slipping into the crowd without an allusion to their meeting yet again, and leaving him to remember at leisure that not a word had been exchanged about the usual scene of that coincidence. This omission struck him now as natural and then again as perverse. She mightn't in the least have allowed his warrant for speaking to her, and yet if she hadn't, he would have judged her an underbred woman. 
It was odd that when nothing had really ever brought them together, he should have been able successfully to assume that they were in a manner old friends, that this negative quantity was somehow more than they could express. His success, it was true, had been qualified by her quick escape, so that there grew up in him an absurd desire to put it to some better test. Save insofar as some other poor chance might help him, such a test could be only to meet her afresh at church. Left to himself, he would have gone to church the very next afternoon, just for the curiosity of seeing if he should find her there. But he wasn't left to himself, a fact he discovered quite at the last, after he had virtually made up his mind to go. The influence that kept him away really revealed to him how little to himself his dead ever left him. He went only for them, for nothing else in the world. The force of this revulsion kept him away ten days. He hated to connect the place with anything but his offices or to give a glimpse of the curiosity that had been on the point of moving him. It was absurd to weave a tangle about a matter so simple as a custom of devotion that might with ease have been daily or hourly, yet the tangle got itself woven. He was sorry. He was disappointed. It was as if a long, happy spell had been broken, and he had lost a familiar security. At the last, however, he asked himself if he was to stay away forever from the fear of this muddle about motives. After an interval, neither longer nor shorter than usual, he re-entered the church with a clear conviction that he should scarcely heed the presence or the absence of the lady of the concert. This indifference didn't prevent his at once noting that for the only time since he had first seen her, she wasn't on the spot. He had now no scruple about giving her time to arrive, but she didn't arrive, and when he went away still missing her, he was profanely and consentingly sorry. If her absence made the tangle more intricate, that was all her own doing. By the end of another year, it was very intricate indeed. But by that time he didn't in the least care, and it was only his cultivated consciousness that had given him scruples. Three times in three months he had gone to church without finding her, and he felt he hadn't needed these occasions to show him his suspense had dropped. Yet it was, incongruously, not indifference, but a refinement of delicacy that had kept him from asking the sacristan, who would, of course, immediately have recognized his description of her, whether she had been seen at other hours. His delicacy had kept him from asking any question about her at any time, and it was exactly the same virtue that had left him so free to be decently civil to her at the concert. This happy advantage now served him anew, enabling him when she finally met his eyes, it was after a fourth trial, to predetermine quite fixedly his awaiting her retreat. He joined her in the street as soon as she had moved, asking her if he might accompany her a certain distance. With her placid permission, he went as far as a house in the neighborhood at which she had business. She let him know it was not where she lived. She lived, as she said, in a mere slum with an old aunt a person in connection with whom she spoke of the engrossment of humdrum duties and regular occupations. She wasn't, the morning niece, in her first youth, and her vanished freshness had left something behind that, for Stransom, represented the proof it had been tragically sacrificed. Whatever she gave him the assurance of, she gave without references. She might have been a divorced duchess. She might have been an old maid who taught the harp.
end chapter 4. Our man Stransom has a partner in grief, a woman who is often by his side, worshiping his dead as he does, as he's conducting his private ritual to remember and honor the dead with these candles that he's arranged for to be on this altar. He's in his 50s, and he's playing a long game. No need to force things. This is just unfolding naturally over the months and years. Then he sees her at a concert two years later. They have this in common, he knows. They're both good at remembering the dead. And they've both chosen candles in this particular church as their way of doing it. He even starts to feel conflicted about it. As if maybe he's he's just going there to try to see her. See her again? Where else is he going to bump into her? Only at this church? And he, so he's planning to go to the church the next day, but they, that takes away some of the satisfaction that remembering his dad has provided for him. When his motivation for doing that was so clear before, but now his motives are muddled. So <laughs> he doesn't want to lose that. Have you ever read a story like this one? It's such an unusual situation, and yet it, it comes out of human emotion that's so recognizable. Truffaut made a movie out of this story, and he played the part of Stransom himself. I'm finding myself pulled into this world even as I find it a little strange. Setting up, numbering your dead, setting up candles that you identify each one with a departed soul. The stakes have been heightened here as if by magic. I find what he's doing to be bizarre. I would never imagine doing it for myself, and yet I care about what happens to Stransom. Even as he's really doing nothing besides going to a church and living out this interior monologue of a drama between himself and his feelings. And now there's a woman, he talks himself into accompanying her for a ways. He learns a little bit about her. She has an old aunt. She herself has a smile and a personality that he never would have expected from her black robes and her, her means, her way of mourning. And he says she might, have, she might have been a divorced duchess. She might have been an old maid who taught the harp. Those two possibilities and everything in between. Who is she really? He doesn't know. What will happen to these two who are bound together in this endeavor in this church? Will they, will they sort of become friendly? Will they find love with one another? Will this grief unite them in some way? Hmm. Let's find out. Back to the story. Chapter 5. Chapter 5. They fell at last into the way of walking together almost every time they met, though for a long time still they never met but at church. He couldn't ask her to come and see him, and as if she hadn't a proper place to receive him, she never invited her friend. As much as himself, she knew the world of London, but from an undiscussed instinct of privacy, they haunted the region not mapped on the social chart. On the return, she always made him leave her at the same corner. She looked with him, as a pretext for a pause, at the depressed things in suburban shop fronts, and there was never a word he had said to her that she hadn't beautifully understood. For long ages, he never knew her name, any more than she had ever pronounced his own. But it was not their names that mattered. It was only their perfect practice and their common need. 
These things made their whole relation so impersonal that they hadn't the rules or reasons people found in ordinary friendships. They didn't care for the things it was supposed necessary to care for in the intercourse of the world. They ended one day, they never knew which of them expressed it first, by throwing out the idea that they didn't care for each other. Over this idea, they grew quite intimate. They rallied to it in a way that marked a fresh start in their confidence. If to feel deeply together about certain things wholly distinct from themselves didn't constitute a safety, where was safety to be looked for? Not lightly, nor often, not without occasion, nor without emotion, any more than in any other reference by serious people to a mystery of their faith. But when something had happened to warm, as it were, the air for it, they came as near as they could come to calling their dead by name. They felt it was coming very near to utter their thought at all. The word they expressed enough. It limited the mention. It had a dignity of its own. And if, in their talk, you had heard our friends use it, you might have taken them for a pair of pagans of old, alluding decently to the domesticated gods. They never knew, at least Stransom never knew, how they had learned to be sure about each other. If it had been with each a question of what the other was there for, the certitude had come in some fine way of its own. Any faith, after all, has the instinct of propagation, and it was as natural as it was beautiful that they should have taken pleasure on the spot in the imagination of a following. If the following was for each but a following of one, it had proved in the event sufficient. Her debt, however, of course, was much greater than his, because while she had only given him a worshiper, he had given her a splendid temple. Once she said she pitied him for the length of his list, she had counted his candles almost as often as himself, and this made him wonder what could have been the length of hers. He had wondered before at the coincidence of their losses, especially as from time to time a new candle was set up. On some occasions, some accident led him to express this curiosity, and she answered as if in surprise that he hadn't already understood. Oh, for me, you know, the, the more there are, the better. There could never be too many. I should like hundreds and hundreds. I should like thousands. I should like a great mountain of light. Then, of course, in a flash, he understood. Your dead are only one? She hung back at this as never yet. Only one, she answered, coloring as if now he knew her guarded secret. It really made him feel he knew less than before. So difficult was it for him to reconstitute a life in which a single experience had so belittled all others. His own life, round its central hollow, had been packed close enough. After this she appeared to have regretted her confession, though at the moment she spoke there had been pride in her very embarrassment. She declared to him that his own was the larger, the dearer possession, the portion one would have chosen if one had been able to choose. She assured him she could perfectly imagine some of the echoes with which his silences were peopled. He knew she couldn't. One's relation to what one had loved and hated had been a relation too distinct from the relations of others. But this didn't affect the fact that they were growing old together in their piety. She was a feature of that piety, but even at the ripe stage of acquaintance in which they occasionally arranged to meet at a concert or to go together to an exhibition, she was not a feature of anything else. 
The most that happened was that his worship became paramount. Friend by friend dropped away, till at last there were more emblems on his altar than houses left him to enter. She was more than any other the friend who remained, but she was unknown to all the rest. Once when she had discovered, as they called it, a new star, she used the expression that the chapel at last was full. Oh, no, Stransom replied. There is a great thing wanting for that. The chapel will never be full till a candle is set up before which all the others will pale. It will be the tallest candle of all. Her mild wonder rested on him. What candle do you mean? I mean, dear lady, my own. He had learned after a long time that she earned money by her pen, writing under a pseudonym she never disclosed in magazines he never saw. She knew too well what he couldn't read and what she couldn't write, and she taught him to cultivate indifference with a success that did much for their good relations. Her invisible industry was a convenience to him. It helped his contented thought of her, the thought that rested in the dignity of her proud, obscure life, her little remunerated art, and her little impenetrable home, lost with her decayed relative in her dim suburban world. She came to the surface for him in distant places. She was really the priestess of his altar, and whenever he quitted England, he committed it to her keeping. She proved to him afresh that women have more of the spirit of religion than men. He felt his fidelity pale and faint in comparison with hers. He often said to her that since he had so little time to live, he rejoiced in her having so much. So glad was he to think she would guard the temple when he should have been called. He had a great plan for that which, of course, he told her, too, a bequest of money to keep it up in undiminished state. Of the administration of this fund, he would appoint her superintendent, and if the spirit should move her, she might kindle a taper even for him. And who will kindle one even for me? She then seriously asked. Okay. That's the end of chapter five. They're not close in the sense of being lovers. That's not in the cards for these two. They've said that to each other, but they have something even closer and deeper. This connection they have, this mourning that they're going through together. He suggests maybe she'll light a candle for him. And she asks, well, who's going to do it for me? This is important to one another. They might be the only two people in the world who can appreciate the severity of that question, the intensity and what it means for each other. And there's another big revelation that we just heard in chapter 5. He mourns many people. Every time one of his dead dies, they get a candle on this altar that he's paying for so that there will be these perpetual flames of light, these stars, they call them. Every time there's a candle, he thinks about them all. He pays tribute to them all, and she only has one. She's there. Number doesn't matter. She wants the more light, the better, because she's mourning a single person. Okay, we're going to do one more chapter this episode, and then we'll take a break and finish the story in, cha in, uh, in the next episode. We're going to do one more chapter, chapter six, because there is a bombshell coming. Chapter six. She was always in mourning. 
Yet the day he came back from the longest absence he had yet made, her appearance immediately told him she had lately had a bereavement. They met on this occasion as she was leaving the church, so that postponing his own entrance, he instantly offered to turn round and walk away with her. She considered, then she said, Go in now, but come and see me in an hour. He knew the small vista of her street, closed at the end and as dreary as an empty pocket, where the pairs of shabby little houses, semi-detached but indissolubly united, were like married couples on bad terms. Often, however, as he had gone to the beginning, he had never gone beyond. Her aunt was dead, that he immediately guessed, as well as that it made a difference. But when she had for the first time mentioned her number, he found himself, on her leaving him, not a little agitated by this sudden liberality. She wasn't a person with whom, after all, one got on so very fast. It had taken him months and months to learn her name, years and years to learn her address. If she had looked on this reunion so much older to him, how in the world did he look to her? She had reached the period of life he had long since reached when, after separations, the marked clock face of the friend we meet announces the hour we have tried to forget. Oh, man. Brief pause here. Henry James is so good. <laughs> so good. This street that looks like an empty pocket. The pairs of houses stand there like, like married couples on bad terms. And now the marked clock face of the friend that we meet that announces the hour we have tried to forget. You see that as you age, as you gray, as you wrinkle, that your friends are eager to see you, they're excited, they recognize you, but they wince because they know you look old and they know that they're not young anymore either. That's the reminder that your face gives them. Oh, told so concisely, so vividly. Okay, back to the story. He couldn't have said what he expected, as, at the end of his waiting, he turned the corner where for years he had always paused. Simply not to pause was a sufficient cause for emotion. It was an event, somehow, and in all their long acquaintance there had never been an event. This one grew larger when, five minutes later, in the faint elegance of her little drawing-room, she quavered out a greeting that showed the measure she took of it. He had a strange sense of having come for something in particular. Strange because literally there was nothing particular between them. Nothing save that they were at one on their great point, which had long ago become a magnificent matter, of course. It was true that after she had said, You can always come now, you know. The thing he was there for seemed already to have happened. He asked her if it was the death of her aunt that made the difference, to which she replied, She never knew I knew you. I wished her not to. The beautiful clearness of her candor, her faded beauty was like a summer twilight, disconnected the words from any image of deceit. They might have struck him as the record of a deep dissimulation, but she had always given him a sense of noble reasons. The vanished aunt was present as he looked about him in the small complacencies of the room, the beaded velvet and the fluted moreen, and though, as we know, he had the worship of the dead, he found himself not definitely regretting this lady. 
If she wasn't in his long list, however, she was in her niece's short one, and Stransom presently observed to the latter that now at least in the place they haunted together she would have another object of devotion. Yes, I shall have another. She was very kind to me. It's that that's the difference. He judged, wondering a good deal before he made any motion to leave her, that the difference would somehow be very great and would consist of still other things than her having let him come in. It rather chilled him, for they had been happy together as they were. He extracted from her at any rate an intimation that she should now have means less limited, that her aunt's tiny fortune had come to her, so that there was henceforth only one to consume what had formerly been made to suffice for two. This was a joy to Stransom, because it had hitherto been equally impossible for him either to offer her presence or contentedly to stay his hand. It was too ugly to be at her side that way, abounding himself and yet not able to overflow, a demonstration that would have been signally a false note. Even her better situation, too, seemed only to draw out, in a sense, the loneliness of her future. It would merely help her to live more and more for their small ceremonial, and this at a time when he himself had begun wearily to feel that, having set it in motion, he might depart. When they had sat a while in the pale parlor, she got up. This isn't my room. Let us go into mine. They had only to cross the narrow hall, as he found, to pass quite into another air. When she had closed the door of the second room, as she called it, he felt at last in real possession of her. The place had the flush of life. It was expressive. Its dark red walls were articulate with memories and relics. These were simple things, photographs and watercolors, scraps of writing framed and ghosts of flowers embalmed, but a moment sufficed to show him they had a common meaning. It was here she had lived and worked, and she had already told him she would make no change of scene. He read the reference and the objects about her, the general one to places and times, but after a minute he distinguished among them a small portrait of a gentleman. At a distance and without their glasses, his eyes were only so caught by it as to feel a vague curiosity. Presently this impulse carried him nearer, and in another moment he was staring at the picture in stupefaction and with the sense that some sound had broken from him. He was further conscious that he showed his companion a white face when he turned round on her, gasping, Acton Haig! She matched his great wonder. Did you know him? He was the friend of all my youth, uh, of my early manhood. And you knew him? She colored at this, and for a moment her answer failed. Her eyes embraced everything in the place, and a strange irony reached her lips as she echoed, Knew him? Then Stransom understood, while the room heaved like the cabin of a ship, that its whole contents cried out with him, that it was a museum in his honor, that all her later years had been addressed to him, and that the shrine he himself had reared had been passionately converted to this use. It was all for Acton Haig that she had kneeled every day at his altar. What need had there been for a consecrated candle when he was present in the whole array? 
The revelation so smote our friend in the face that he dropped into a seat and sat silent. He had quickly felt her shaken by the force of his shock. But as she sank on the sofa beside him and laid her hand on his arm, he knew almost as soon that she mightn't resent it as much as she'd have liked. Oh my, that's the end of chapter six. My God. These two people are united in the worship of their dead. He has many. She has only one. He prefers the multitudes. He has a candle for every person who's left him. He's paid to have these candles lit all the time, and the light is growing brighter and brighter as he's dead. His, the number of his dead are added to. The feeling he gets of remembering lots of souls who have left him. That's his preference. She, on the other hand, has only been mourning one. And she uses his candles to remember her one. Her method of worshiping that one dead of hers is to generate and to, to use the candles he's generated. To worship just one dead with all that light. It's two ways of honoring the dead, and it has united them, the two of them, spiritually. And Stransom feels like he finally knows her when her aunt dies and she lets him come over, visit her rooms. And then, within a few paragraphs, this revelation is upended, reversed, completely changed when he learns that the object of her grief is the only guy that he himself has refused to mourn, Acton Haig, the old best friend who wronged him. It's where his charity and benevolence and piety stop short, and it's where hers begins and ends. All of those candles, for him, it's, it's for everyone but Acton Haig, and she's there at the same time, side by side with him, and it's only been four. Acton Haig, what is going to happen to these two now? Well, we are going to hear that next time. Cue theme song. Mm. Okay, there we go. That's the first two-thirds of the story, The Altar of the Dead. By Henry James, we will come back with the conclusion next time, along with some Emily Dickinson. Why not? She's like a spice that makes everything better. Speaking of honoring the dead, I'd like a few candles for Emily. She's given me so much pleasure, as has our author today, the master himself. Maybe I'll light a candle for him when this is over. Mr. Henry James, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.